0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're going to begin a series called Israel 2018 with a message Dr. Neufeld's entitled, Encountering God in the Holy Land. So let's join Dr. Neufeld now for this very special series.
1: In Acts chapter 26... Luke records a conversation between Paul and a man named King Agrippa. Now, this King Agrippa was actually the grandson of Herod the Great. Yep, that's the the king who put all the children to death at Bethlehem. So, Paul is appearing before Agrippa to give a defense of his ministry. And among other things that Paul says during that encounter, Paul tells Agrippa that he's persuaded that none of the events regarding the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus has escaped the king's notice. And then he adds these words, for this has not been done in a corner. So another way of saying that would be to say, this has been done on center stage. Now I've been asked to give a one week encounter with God in the Holy Land. And I hope you realize that it's just a bit problematic. First and most obviously, this is audio. And all I can do is describe to you something that you're gonna have to visualize. And secondly, even if this were video, it doesn't get the same experience as actually being there. And yet, if you listen carefully, I think this is worthwhile, and and here's why. Whenever you encounter real history, it always comes with three things. First, it comes with a map. In other words, if something really truly happened, you're right to ask where precisely, not where generally, but where precisely did this thing happen? And second, real history includes dates, that is, a time period when something happened. And, and third, real history comes with archaeological digs, which include the ruins of ancient buildings, pottery, inscriptions, ancient streets, and a background of real culture. And very often, that also includes ancient manuscripts of, of things recorded by genuine eyewitnesses or of people who interviewed those eyewitnesses. All real history includes those three elements, maps, dates, and archaeology. So when you come across a story that begins with the words, a long, long time ago in the land of Hushabai, there lived a handsome young prince. Well, you know that event did not happen. It's fantasy or a fairy tale or the work of fiction. You know, it might be enjoyable fiction, but you know that's what it is. But the three elements that I've mentioned maps, dates, and archaeology well, they are the difference between fact and fiction. I don't want to offend, but at the risk of doing so, please forgive me, but let me use the Book of Mormon as an example. You know, those who believe that the book is inspired claim that what happened in that book happened somewhere in the Americas, but no map, no archaeology. No manuscripts, no fixed historical dates. And I know it's often said that you'll know the Book of Mormon is true by a burning in the bosom, but but there's a problem when our view of truth depends on our subjective feelings. See, I know of people who believe the earth is flat and, and even claim to have had an almost a religious experience when they come to believe it. And whether it's the belief in UFO experiences or hidden and suppressed in utero memories, the belief that I'm a male trapped in a female body, and and on and on it goes. You know, a number of years ago, a group of children all claimed the daycare they were a part of had ritual murders and that all the bodies were buried in the backyard. Well, this belief was held so strongly, even though it was proven not to be true. Police departments have long ago discovered that people believe they saw an individual at a crime scene only to discover that he wasn't there. So were the people lying? Well, no, they weren't. But human memory, along with the reality that that deep passions can often mislead us, it's simply a known fact that deeply held beliefs doesn't make something true. And whenever you open your Bible and read about the patriarchs and kings and warriors and common people, well, you have the right to ask, did all this stuff really take place? Where did it happen? When? And how do we know it happened there? You know, when you join back to the Bible Canada and the Holy Land, you'll be taken to the ancient ruins of a city then was named Caesarea. It was the place the Roman soldiers charged with keeping peace in Israel during the time of Jesus were stationed. You know, critics of the Bible used to say that there really was no such person as Pontius Pilate. But when you go there today, you'll find a replica of a stone. Now, the original stone that archaeologists discovered is now housed in a museum in Israel. But they made a replica of that stone and put it exactly where the original was found. And the stone bears an inscription. It says, Pontius Pilotus. It's a marker of the man who commanded the Roman troops and was the Roman governor of Israel. Or wander through the ruins of Capernaum, the town that Jesus made the center of his ministry. You know, there says the Bible, he called two brothers, James and John. They were the sons of a man named Zebedee. In one of the inscriptions from a building from the first century in that village, we find the words, family of Zebedee. What many people in North America don't understand is that the Holy Land contains hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pieces of evidence that corroborate the history that's described in the Bible. So much so that scholars have used the Bible to understand the history of the ancient Near East. They know it as a primary textbook of real history. The Bible you read, well, you don't have to guess if it's true. There's a part of the world where you can discover the truth of your Bible and strengthen your faith like nothing else. Now, in order to illustrate that, let me take you to a place called the Wilderness of En You know, this is the place where David was once fleeing from King Saul as Saul was attempting to take his life. It's a hot, barren, and inhospitable place, barren desert with rocks and sand and not much shade. It's located close to the Dead Sea, which you might know is the lowest point on earth in and around that area where steep ravines drop very swiftly down into an even deeper valley or, or a series of mountain caves. The year is 1947, one year before the United Nations established Israel as a Jewish homeland. A young Bedouin shepherd by the name of Mohammed Eddeeb was wandering among those limestone cliffs looking for his lost sheep. Intrigued by a cave he found among the rocky hillside, He threw a stone into it, and he was surprised to hear the sound of a clink, the breaking sound, as if the stone had struck something other than a rock. He struggled into the cave and found a collection of large clay jars. The majority were empty, but others revealed a a series of old scrolls, old leather scrolls. Initially, he thought the leather would make excellent sandals. And he brought them to a shoemaker who, by the providence of God, was also a dealer in antiquities. Well, that shoemaker slash dealer of antiquities realized something valuable might have been found. And to make a long story a short one, the scrolls ended up in the hands of Professor Eliezer Lipa Sukennik. He traveled to Bethlehem to get a look at what had been found, and to his amazement, he found Hebrew manuscripts. Let me read from Professor Sukenik's diary. He said, My hands shook as I started to unwrap them. I read a few sentences. It was written in beautiful biblical Hebrew. I looked and looked and suddenly had the feeling that I was privileged by destiny to gaze upon a Hebrew scroll which had not been read for more than 2,000 years. Again, to make a long story into a short one, archaeologists hurried to the site and found Not only the first cave, but 10 additional caves containing the remains of over 900 ancient manuscripts containing literally thousands of fragments. How did those scrolls get there, and what did they contain, and what did it all mean? Well, that in itself is a fascinating story, but again, I'm trying to make a very long story into a short one. Among the scrolls were found each one of the Old Testament books, with the exception of the book of Esther. But the most breathtaking of all those scrolls was the scroll of Isaiah the prophet. The Isaiah scroll found at the Dead Sea contained 54 columns and contained all 66 chapters of the book. It had been copied out in about 200 B.C., but as fascinating as that is, here's the kicker. Until that moment, the oldest scroll that we had of Isaiah was copied around A.D. 800. That means that we found a scroll 1,000 years older than the one that we had. And that meant, and this is where every Bible student wants to sit up, that meant we could now see whether 1,000 years of copying had changed the message of the book. Now, how many of you ever played that child's game where a group of children sit in a circle and one is given a note and they tell the child beside him the contents of that note and, and then each child goes around the circle and whispers it to the next one And then finally they compare it with what the last child heard, and usually it's a garbled mess. Is that what's happened in our Bible? And the answer from the Dead Sea Scrolls is definitive. Although there are some minor spelling changes, 1,000 years of copying showed an amazing accuracy. The discovery at Qumran tells us that the Bible we buy from Amazon or a Christian bookstore remarkably and accurately reflects the original writings. God has seen to that. April 28,
0: 2019, back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway and guests will be headed out for our third Israel experience. Each of the last two reminded us of the spiritual impact a journey to the Holy Land has upon the follower of Jesus. Walk where Jesus walked, stand where Moses, Abraham, Jacob encountered their God. Spend time in worship and reflect upon the stories of Scripture with Bible teacher Dr. John Neufeld and visit incredible sites such as the Garden Tomb, the Mount of Beatitudes, and the Sea of Galilee. This is a trip of a lifetime and we want to share it with you. For more information or to register, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Remember, space is limited, so register today and join us for the 2019 Israel Experience. And please remember, all costs associated with Back to the Bible Canada tours or events are paid for by the participant.
1: Years ago, as my wife and I toured the Nile River in Egypt, we were blessed to have a guide who was also a noted Egyptologist. You know, we would visit the ruins of ancient Egyptian temples covered in hieroglyphics, and our guide would translate what was written. And I remember in one ancient temple, we found out that there was written on a wall an announcement made of the beginning of or the first year of King Solomon's reign in Israel. And because the Egyptians had the very best dating system in the ancient world, we now know that the first year of the reign of Solomon was equivalent to our 970 BC. And that bit of knowledge is essential. And Why is that? Because according to 1 Kings 6 verse 1, well, let me read it to you. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel. Well, Since we now know that Solomon began to reign in 970, four years later would make it the year 966 BC. And since the Bible says that Israel came out of Egypt 480 years before 960 BC, we know that the year of the Exodus was 1446 BC. Well, so what does that tell us? Well, since Israel, according to the Bible, wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, We know that Moses must have died in 1406 B.C., and at that time, coming down from Mount Nebu, which stands in in present-day Jordan, Joshua led the people down and they entered the promised land. And so you see what we have in the Bible. We have the dates when events occurred, we have the places in which they happened, and the sites where archaeologists dug up a trove of treasure, all indicating the truth of what the Bible tells us. You can wander through the land of Israel with a Bible in hand and discover where Elijah stood when he condemned the the priests of Baal, and where David fought Goliath, and where King Jeroboam built an idolatrous altar in Dan, and where Peter declared to Jesus that he knew that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Wander around Israel long enough, and you'll get a living sense of how and where God revealed himself. And when you come home and you open your Bible, if you've ever wondered whether these things that you read about are really true and whether God actually exists and revealed himself in real history, Israel is not just a place to renew your faith. It's a place to study your Bible as you never knew you could before. But all of this takes me back to 1947 and that young man, Mohammed Adib, looking for his lost sheep. I mean, think of it. The year was 1947. One year later, after 2,000 years of having been banished from their land, God allowed the promised people back into the promised land. I know that nothing happens by coincidence. What happened in 1948 was not just that the Jewish people were allowed to go home, but that God was opening up that piece of geography for a new era in Bible study. And it couldn't have happened at a better time. You see, liberal scholarship, with its rationalistic presuppositions, had begun to question every part of Scripture. You know, liberal scholars argued that the Bible was not the work of the prophets inspired by the Spirit of God. Instead, they argued that the Bible was a set of documents that had been edited and re-edited hundreds of times. Liberals were arguing that writing had not even been invented by the time of Moses, but then we discovered the Rosetta Stone and have proven that writing not only existed in the time of Moses, but it had existed for many centuries before Moses. And here's my point. To those who argue that the Bible is not an authentic document, at just the time when their scholarship was reaching its ascendancy, at just such a time, Israel came back to the promised land and archaeology, geography, and ancient manuscripts, and so much more has completely revolutionized our study of the Bible. In this remarkable day of critics, God has opened up a new era in Bible study that has helped millions and millions discover that they are no fools for believing this book in its entirety. They can trust this book. Let me put it in a way that we can all understand. At present, we have more than 3,000 manuscripts of the Old Testament and more than 5,700 manuscripts of the New Testament. Now, if you compare this to the number of manuscripts we have to other ancient sources, well, the comparison is staggering. See, on average, there are over 1,000 ancient biblical manuscripts for every one manuscript from other ancient classical authors. What does that mean? Well, it means that if you discount the Bible, you're an absolute fool to trust any ancient source at all. See, in that case, we would know nothing of history at all. See, the Bible is 1,000 times better attested than any other ancient writing the human race has, and God has seen to that. But wait, there's more. About 15 of the New Testament manuscripts that we possess were copied less than 100 years from the original. In fact, it now seems likely that in one instance, we actually possess a first-generation manuscript, a fragment that was copied from the original itself. And by comparison, the average manuscript of classical authors, well, we have no copy of what they wrote until 500 years from the original. And since no scholar doubts the trustworthiness of those manuscripts, I mean, what further proof do we need that we can indeed trust our Bible? But some will say, oh, yeah, but aren't there some variants among the many manuscripts? Well, it's true, but here's the kicker. We now have so many manuscripts to work with, there can be little doubt as we compare one with the other, that we can now say with a high degree of certainty that we know exactly what the original looked like, God has seen to that. But how were these books written and how did they come to us? Even though we, we can't always say with precision, consider the following example. It's a little piece of insight that we can gain from Joshua 1 verse 8. You know, there we're told that Moses has just died and God has appointed Joshua to be the next leader of Israel and that he will take them to the promised land. The year is 1406 B.C. God is speaking with Joshua and God's words are being recorded in a book. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And then come the words of Joshua 1 verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do all that is written in it. You know, a thoughtful reader will ask, well, which book of the law are we talking about? Well, the only book that these wandering desert people had was the book of the law that was given to them by Moses. In short, Moses had just barely died, And all Israel already knew what they had. They had scripture. That's not just the law of Moses. It's the law of God. Is it any wonder then that they not only taught it and memorized it, but they also appointed faithful men to painstakingly and carefully preserve this law by copying it so that after the original had decayed, they would still have a copy of the very words of God. And all of that brings me back to the land of Israel. See, this is the place where God did miracles and revealed his powerful hand and inspired prophets who wrote the things of God. But notice that this is also the place where men realized the treasure they had been given, carefully, with great care, copied and recopied and recopied for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, the most excellent treasure the earth has, the very words of God himself. Now I know that not all of you can join Back to the Bible on our Israel adventure. Perhaps you may join us in a future trip, but the reason why the leadership at Back to the Bible has asked me to talk about the Israel experience is that all of God's people might experience God in the Promised Land, even if for now it's only a vicarious experience. And so for the next four days, I will replay the adventure of Jesus in the Promised Land. I want you to imagine you're sitting with me at the theater in Caesarea the city Herod the Great built, the city where Pontius Pilate was stationed, the city where Peter first preached to Cornelius and where Paul was held a prisoner, and from that very harbor his ship set out for Rome where he would stand trial. From there we will travel north to the region of Galilee, green-rich farmland and a major body of water called the Sea of Galilee. There we will visit Nazareth and especially Capernaum, and a hill not far from Capernaum that overlooks the Sea of Galilee, from where Jesus preached the greatest sermon the world has ever heard. And the next day, we're gonna move south to Jerusalem. And finally, we'll stand at the entrance of an empty tomb. And then, before this week is done, we'll go back north and stand on the very mountain where Elijah condemned the prophets of Baal. And look out over the plains of Megiddo, that historic site where the nations will gather in the Valley of Decision. And then quickly we'll go back to Jerusalem out on the Mount of Olives, where Jesus' foot will touch as he comes to reclaim his own. And as we do this, we will remember that these things were not done in a corner. They were done on center stage.
0: John, you know we always say if you go to Israel, it just makes the Bible so much more meaningful to you. But let me ask you, can you, can you be a Christian? Can you understand the Bible without
1: going to Israel? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I, sometimes I think we almost overdo this thing. I think I want to say that what will happen, especially for those who are biblically literate, when they go to the Promised Land, it will add, you know, a depth and a reality, almost a, almost a tactile reality, to the to the reading of the Bible. But you know, uh, you can read your Bible and study it for a lifetime. And in so doing, you can grow in every way into all that Christ wants you to be. So, no, you don't miss anything, but you do add something when you go. I think that's what I want to say.
0: Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. As we enter a new season of ministry, we want to take the opportunity to reaffirm our determination to stand firm in our mission. To effectively teach and engage our nation with the Bible and to do so using every effective tool at our disposal. Your support of the ministries of Back the Bible Canada make it possible. So in a season of shifting values, we're asking you to stand with us. Your gift sustains and increases the impact of our daily program with Dr. Newfeld our ministry to young adults in doubt and Laugh-Again's message of hope and joy found in Jesus. So please consider supporting the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada today. And if you've enjoyed Dr. Newfeld's new Israel 2018 series, we want to send it to you as our gift, no strings attached. So call us today to send your donation or to receive Israel 2018 on CD for free. Call 1-800-663-2425 or visit Back to the
1: Bible dot CA.